We are back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashensky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're joined once again by Christian Toto. He's the editor of a brand new book. It's called Virtue Bombs, How Hollywood Got Woke and Lost Its Soul. Christian, welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Yeah, so start off just by telling us about this book. I mean, it's you can tell by the title itself. It's it's tapping into something that a lot of people know and are frustrated by when it comes to Hollywood and the entertainment industry. But this is something you cover on a daily basis. Um, why now? Why now was the was it the time for this particular book? Well, it's funny. I was approached by someone in the publishing field, and he said to me, "We should work on a book together." And I thought, "Oh, that's kind of flattering," but. What would I write about him? I'm 53. I haven't written a book yet. So, you know, what was the, what, what would I focus on? I thought, oh, of course, there's no other topic I could focus on besides woke Hollywood, what's going on. And like you said, I covered every day. And I think what I've realized throughout this whole process from the beginning to now is that, you know, you can look at virtue signaling. You can look at actors apologizing for taking the wrong role. You can look at comedians who are, you know, uh, worried about the next joke they tell. But I think when you put it all together in one package, it really is a devastating indictment of, of Hollywood in general. And I, you know, I use Hollywood as sort of a blanket term, but what's going on within the creative industry, it, it's it's a problem, it's significant. And of course, like university wokeism, what starts there doesn't end there. It bleeds into the culture at large. You know, Andrew Claven wrote the foreword for this book, and it starts off, I mean, dipping into a little bit of history. It's actually called Why I Love the Blacklist and Christian Toto. Um, and then you get into some of the history and the sort of arc of Hollywood's interest in politics or approach towards politics. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were, as you're doing the research for this book and you're writing the book, what are your big takeaways from looking at that arc and, and how it shifted throughout the industry's history? Well, I mean, it's no secret that Hollywood is is left of center and increasingly so. But I think what what this is, is sort of a combination of the two. And sometimes the the woke situation is is very intertwined with progressive politics. So it can be hard to kind of untangle the two. But I think what we're seeing now is it's not just an industry that will, you know, promote uh, liberal causes, that will ignore right of center comedy, that will, you know, shill for certain candidates and attack other candidates. It's something more disturbing now. I mean, you know, an industry can can do and say what they want. That's perfectly fine. But what's happening within within Hollywood is is this creative destruction where you can't tell certain stories, you can't tell certain jokes, you can't be in a show if you're a certain demographic or you have a certain skin color, or maybe you'll get a leg up if you do. And so that's that's the kind of the combination of the two. And that's where it's getting uh, problematic to use a favorite term on the left, where it's not just, hey, Hollywood is liberal, it's it's far beyond that, and it's disturbing. And, I, and often, liberals get caught up in the crossfire. We've seen that a lot with Tina Fey and uh, Scarlett Johansson, Jim Gaffigan. You know, they're they're finding out, even though they're like minded souls, it's never you're never you're never woke enough. You're never uh, a, you know progressive enough. 
Yeah, and that's a, a good point. You, you talk a little bit about uh, Taylor Swift and Jimmy Fallon, who I think are fantastic examples of this. Um, but as you said, I want to just pause right there for a second. As you said, there are, it's not just about what they are, what they aren't making. It's also what they're sort of proactively messaging, right? Like they go out of their way in the past where they may have just stayed silent. It's sort of like this aggressive chasing of uh, progressive virtue bombs, I guess you could say. How, how much of that is part of this as well? Yeah, you know, I think it's one of the easiest and most direct examples you can mention about this whole cultural situation where you're watching a movie and all of a sudden the movie screeches to a halt to send a message. Now, that's happened throughout history. You know, you could have clunky uh, messaging in a film where they don't really integrate what the director or writer wanted to express in a cohesive fashion, but it's becoming more obvious, more almost laughable at times. And I think maybe one of the best examples that angered everyone was in Avengers Endgame, near the end of the film, there's a big battle royale. And if several female Avengers get together all of a sudden and sort of do a girl power moment, and it was so forced and so obvious that even far left websites, I think like the Mary Sue, I may have that writer, if I'm, I'm in the right ballpark, they were aghast. They, they said, hey, stop pandering to us. And that's exactly what it was. So I think at its most cartoonish, this whole woke sentiment is the sort of the finger wagging. You need to think a certain way. You need to be aware. You need to be woke of what's going on in society. And it's just a terrible way to tell a story. Yeah. And then it for a lot of people who maybe casual observers of this phenomenon and, and, you know, big consumers of the entertainment industry's politics or products, because, you know, you cover everything from Hollywood, but also to the music industry and just sort of celebrity culture in general. They wonder from a business perspective, what happened to Michael Jordan's maxim that Republicans buy shoes too? What are this sort of explanations, you know, what what are the the factors that would motivate businesses to uh, risk turning off consumers, a wide swath of the country, by sort of not even just you know, not appealing to them, but proactively kind of offending them and offending their own sensibilities? What is the business interest at play here? That's it's a fascinating question, and I think. I think my glib answer is that there's a bubble mentality in play. I think if you have a corporation and all of a sudden they say, you know, we need to make our M&Ms more inclusive. I suspect there's not a lot of diversity of thought within that boardroom. No one's going to raise his or her hand and say, hey, wait a minute. That may, you know, this is wildly unnecessary and actually may anger some people. And I think something similar is happening in Hollywood where everyone is of a like mind. And when these, these kind of conversations pop up, when these storylines pop up, I don't think anyone's in the room who's saying, gosh, this maybe is not a great idea. Or if they are, they're afraid to even suggest such an opposing view. So I, I, that's my, because I can't understand why you would do this from a, from a capitalistic point of view. Hollywood is show business. Show business is about money. It's about profits. And you, you have to know on some level that what you're doing may not be the best way to kind of uh, increase your profits. I, I, so my only guess is that they're not even thinking that far ahead. You write, is it too much to ask Steven Spielberg, Martin Scorsese, Denzel Washington, or Julia Roberts to take a stand for free expression? We have seen certain people, uh, I guess, sort of dip their toes into that water. Um, we've seen some people go fully into it. Some people in Hollywood, few and far between, of course, um, go go sort of in that direction and get rebuked immediately. Of course, they survive that sort of cycle, but they do have to you know, battle a, a cycle of bad 
press coverage. Um, but why do you think it is that you don't even have that sort of like the basic stand for free expression that in and of itself has become charged and political? Um, but these are the artists that were sort of taking so much pride in, in their stances, um, whether it's, you know, with Aaron Brockovich or anything else before. Suddenly it's, you know, it's less of a virtue, it seems. Yeah, it's the thing that maybe drives me the craziest about this whole conversation is that we don't get the big stars speaking out uh, either as a group or even individually. You know, what would it really kill George Clooney's career to take a stand for free expression? Right. I think part of this is fear. Part of this is they don't want to. It, it's messy. It, it, you know, it, it's you know, your career is is hurtling along and you're doing great and you're getting gigs. This could interrupt that flow even for, for a moment or even longer. I, I think what I'd love to see, and this I think would be perfect, is a lot of people gather and maybe release a statement together and kind of have a power in numbers situation where Clooney and Hanks and Streep and Denzel and all these big, big names sign their names to something and collectively say enough is enough. That way, I don't think any you know individual would get canceled or attacked. They'd, they'd be protected by their numbers. But again, they're not interested in doing that. Um, why? I, I, I mean, I'd love to get someone of that that star quality in a room alone and just have a heart to heart conversation, even if it's off the record, and just say why? Why is this not happening? You know, we're seeing actors not being allowed to take certain roles. We're seeing you know stories that that can't be told any anymore. We're seeing how many conversations do you say? Well, can't make that movie anymore. That's a problem. You know, it's not saying we can't make Birth of a Nation anymore, which had significant racial uh, content. We talk about not making Blazing Saddles, which was an attack on racism. So all these things matter. They matter far beyond pop culture into the culture we live in. And uh, I just wish some big stars would take a stand. You know, J.K. Rowling has done that, but, you know, she was individually attacked and it's a very personal issue for her. And there are some smaller stars. You know, Adam Carolla is not a mega star, but he is as tough and as strong and as proud in this issue as anyone. Right. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So the question then is, and this is a big one when it comes to demand, you know, I think consumers do have demand for, uh, of course, there's consumer demand for sort of politically incorrect comedy and politically incorrect art and uh, movies that appeal to American audiences because they tap into sort of shared, shared cultural experiences that we have that we may not have with the Chinese audiences. Um, but why then is the... It, this gets into the business question again. Um, how has the quality suffered? And is there, I guess, an understanding from your reporting and your coverage of this in Hollywood that the quality has suffered? You know, the quality issue is tough because in many ways we have so many different outlets creating content right now. This, you know, As we speak, I think six more streaming platforms just launched. It's getting crazy. And often that kind of competition does force these individual groups to up their game. You can't, you know, if you're a new streaming platform, if you're HBO, you can't just peddle mediocre content because people can go to 18 other different alternatives. So I think that's a, a that's a force that helps the quality that kind of pushes things to get better. But at the same time, what the woke situation is sort of, you can't tell this story, you can't tell that, you have to be careful with this particular character. So I think there's competing forces here. So I think just anecdotally and subjectively, 
whenever the Oscar season comes around, which is kind of where we are right now, I look around and think, okay, what are the Oscar bait movies? Which are the ones that are in the conversation? And for me, I've seen a lot of them and I think they're fine. They're good. They're well-made. There's nothing really wrong with them, but nothing is amazing. Nothing, nothing really, you know, catches me off guard. There's no, there's no movie I've seen recently that I, I can't wait to watch again, or I want to show with my kids when they're older. So, you know, I, I think there's been a dip in quality to a certain degree, maybe more on the movie level than on the TV level, but uh, it's a complicated question. But uh, I, I do think what's happening in the culture at large now does leave a lot of room open for individual voices, for other platforms to kind of rise up and make some great content. You're seeing that in the comedy realm where, you know, a Stephen Colbert monologue can be unwatchable, but you watch a video from Ryan Long or J.P. Sears or or Tyler Fisher, and it's very funny and it's edgy and it's cool and it's hip and it's different and it's thought provoking. It's all the things that Colbert is. And so in some ways we are seeing a uh, a, a new cultural tide, but, you know, th- they're working on the perimeter. So it's much, much harder. Mm, yeah, that's a that is a good point. And of course, the uh, democratization of the entertainment industry and the news industry has allowed people like Ryan Long and uh, to to flourish in a way that they probably wouldn't have been able to in the past. Um, I'm curious. I mean, there's there's so much interesting stuff in here. I'm curious if you can talk about the decline of celebrities. I mean, I think for a lot of people, Betty White is one of them or was one of them, sadly. Um, One of the celebrities that was sort of because of mass media and the way we used to consume movies and television, someone whose politics were a mystery, almost uh, someone who could be political, like a Johnny Carson, um, you know, or or a Dolly Parton, who, who does make political jokes, but not to the extent that you really know that they have intense ideological leanings in one direction or the other on on most issues um you write about you know the fact that we don't really have celebrities like that anymore can you talk more about um your studying of that phenomenon yeah i mean i think there's a lot of reasons why you know betty white came of age where you had only a few channels you had shows that had to have mass appeal so i think a lot of our our affection for betty white is based on that those shows that time in our lives. Uh, I think that the landscape is so splintered right now. There are very few shows that kind of capture the public. I think Yellowstone is one and we can go into that as well because, you know, it's a show that I, I don't think Hollywood is, is, is eager to replicate. Um, it's got a very blue collar sort of uh, heartland appeal, but also, you know, the actors are more political. They are more strident in their views. So that certainly doesn't help matters at all. And, you know, I think we're overexposed when it comes to celebrities and, th- and this is not really their fault. You know, back in the day when I would watch the Oscars, I knew I'd see Jack Nicholson and Jack Nicholson was not a guy who showed up on Johnny Carson's couch. He didn't do a ton of interviews. It was special to see him because I love his movies and I wanted to kind of catch Jack Nicholson, you know, in a, in a different kind of situation. But now we see the stars everywhere. They're in magazine profiles and online uh, articles. They're on social media. We can follow what they're eating for dinner. It just makes it less special. So you combine that with the splintered landscape, with the more aggressive political posturing, all those reasons, the stars aren't the stars like they used to be. Mm. You have a, a chapter on this book on the canceling of classic movies. Um, tell us about uh, what actually has sort of been attacked and whether you think this is a, a really important question, um, because we do have so much access to past um, you know, movies, television shows, whatever it is, uh, because we do still have so much access to them. Do you think the movies have sort of survived attempts at cancellation? 
So far, most of them have. I don't think there's been a, a ransacking of culture quite yet, but there's been flirtations with it. You know, Gone with the Wind is arguably the most popular film of all time. I think if you adjust for, for inflation, it may have been the most profitable movie or made the most money or something. You know, you know the deal. It's Gone with the Wind. It's a classic. And uh, one op-ed by the L.A. Times and HBO Max briefly pulled it from their from their roster. And then when they returned it, it had a, a kind of a trigger warning situation where you have to you know explain it. Listen, a movie made 20, 30, 40 years ago is not going to match the culture today. And I think in some good ways, we've, you know, we've matured as a society and we wouldn't tell stories in a, in a way that we would back then. So I think there is an evolution of culture. I think it's perfectly fine. I think it's wonderful. You know, we're, we're less racist today than we were 20, 30 years ago. That's a wonderful thing. We need that progress. But I, I think we're, we're, kind of uh, we're not trusting audiences to understand that when you watch a black and white movie from the 40s it may not directly mirror the values we have today you know we're infantile and we're treated like infants because we're not given that credibility you know i just read that there's going to be a trigger warning on george orwell's 1984 it's the ultimate irony (laughs) uh but you know the culture says you know you can't be trusted we have to protect you we've got to bubble wrap you and i don't think a free society really thrives in that situation you write about the transition sort of from from free rock to woke rock um and that's a a part of the book that does touch on the music industry and and the way this is changing art and not just uh, necessarily in hollywood tell us about that yeah i mean look at you know look at the recent headlines neil young doesn't want his music on spotify because there's joe rogan and he disagrees with some of the opinions and some of the conversations that Rogan is having on his super popular podcast. Now, years ago, Neil Young starred in a uh, freedom of speech themed tour, but now he's not so keen on it. You know, listen, if he was blasting misinformation being peddled by CNN and MSNBC and the mainstream media, at least he'd have some consistently there. We could have we could have a real conversation, but he just doesn't want views that he doesn't agree with out there. I mean, it's it's as simple as that. My favorite singer is Elvis Costello. I adore his music. I think he's a genius. And he recently retired Oliver's Army, one of his best early songs, because it has a, a problematic lyric in it. And rather than defend it, explain it, put it in context, he's like, I'm out, I won't sing anymore, and please stop playing it in the radio. That's what we're seeing from some of the old guard. And it's depressing. I really want to dive into the chapter you did um, on Ghostbusters and you write about other uh, female reboots of uh, classic movies. Ghostbusters looking back feels like it was a real flashpoint Um, and it feels like that was one of those lightning rods that launched this conversation from sort of the surface or from sort of lurking beneath the surface and and sort of being fodder for Twitter debates into something that uh, ordinary people were paying attention to that people, you know, who, who don't follow this for a living and aren't sort of trolls on Twitter pay attention to. How important was that incident? And maybe you could refresh everybody's memory on it. Um, but how important was that incident to sort of launching this conversation about wokeness in Hollywood to the forefront? Yeah, I think it's a great point. I, and I kind of wrote the chapter and didn't, I don't think I connected the dots quite as, as succinctly as you just did. Uh, it was the reboot of the property. And instead of having, well, the original had four male Ghostbusters. This time they had four female Ghostbusters. And this was sort of part of an emerging trend of take a classic movie and then give it a spin by, uh, you know, swapping out the gender. So instead of Dirty Rotten Scandals with Michael Caine and Steve Martin, you had uh, Anne Hathaway and Rebel Wilson in a horrible remake of that movie. And that's part of what this was with the Ghostbusters. But what it really revealed was 
sometimes when this happens, it's a mediocre product. And I think when you have a mediocre product, you've got to kind of take a plan B. You can't really say, well, this is a great movie. We're going to let this speak for itself. And they be- it became a, a culture war conversation. And, and, you know, the Washington Post said, well, if you don't like this whole concept, you might be a misogynist. Again, this isn't some random blog. It's the Washington Post. There was a full-on press effort by the media to defend this film, to cheer on this film. It was very obvious. So I think you saw an early example of the media really embracing the woke dynamic. It, it, it's full on right now. It's, it's, it's so obvious and so clear that they're, they've chosen sides. But I think that was an earlier example of just that. And also as a movie critic myself, I watched my fellow critics bend over backwards to cheer on this film and, and, right. And, you know, and a quick example, which I mentioned in the book, Richard Roper is a very established critic. He was, you know, paired up with Roger Ebert for a while, and he's no conservative. And he said at one point, you know, I think my fellow critics graded Ghostbusters on a curve because they wanted it to succeed. It was a female-led movie. You know, we wouldn't have young female scientists if this if this movie didn't come out. I mean, that was one of the arguments that was being made. So I think it revealed a lot about the culture, about the studio in question. You know, Sony said, you know what, bring this conversation on. And then when it lost reportedly $70 million, they had a change of heart. So fascinating. Well, and and the, the Ghostbusters reboot is such a good example for a, a, it's it's just like one of the most representative examples of the problem here because it also kind of sucked, like you said, <laughs> and it, it was just like they swapped the genders for the sake of swapping the genders without also sort of making gender salient to the reboot, right? Like, because they don't want to acknowledge that men are different from women. Um, and so maybe they're sort of like on this, this um, the, they have taken up this artistic endeavor, but with without allowing themselves to actually be creative and to be free thinking um, in making it. And I'm curious as how you think Ghostbusters in some ways represented a lot of the, the problems and, and maybe even the perfect storm that's hitting Hollywood right now all at once. Yeah, I think someone, sometimes when you go the woke direction, it's a let's put the emphasis on the woke and not the storytelling, not the script, not the finished product. It's it's a shortcut. And, you know, I, I imagine maybe it's subconscious. I don't think anyone sets out to make a bad movie and think, hey, let's make a comedy without some laughs. So it, it it's just sort of happens. And and by the way, what I what I always think is so fascinating about the whole Ghostbusters situation is there was. You know, the, the sort of the Comic Con crowd was not happy. You know, we want our old, uh, the old gang back, and I get that. And some of it was overheated, some of it's silly. Which you know, sometimes Comic Con, you know, fans can be overheated and silly. I, I consider myself a geek, so I'm not going to be, you know, ex- excluding myself. But you know what? If the first Ghostbusters trailer back in 2016 was a riot and it was funny and it was just made you howl, all of this would have went away, and the conversation would have went straight to, oh, I can't wait to see it. it looks kind of cool. And the whole, I don't want female Ghostbusters, that would have just been pushed aside and people would have mostly ignored that conversation. But it stunk and people people realized it stunk and it kind of it made it even more, uh, you know, toxic at that point. You write at length in a, in a full chapter, actually, on Gina Carano, um, who's been on this podcast. And there's an interesting, uh, this, is, this is also an interesting case study in that Gina Carano is pretty political. Um, and that, and, and especially now, you know, after being canceled for something that was ridiculous and not worthy of canceling an artist, um, unless you need to hold artists to the, the standards that you hold every single politician to, which is insane and is going to create the worst art ever. Um, but if you, 
if you look at that and you say this is somebody who was in an extremely popular uh, the, the Mandalorian, which was supposed to basically appeal to everyone. You know, it wasn't really for a niche nerd audience. It wasn't like a Colbert-style uh, resistance boomer type piece of entertainment. It wasn't just for conservatives. It was really something for everyone. Um, but Gina Carano is is fairly political. She's very popular with the right now, although I doubt she would refer to herself as a conservative. But is that maybe the future that we don't really... We will have way fewer of the old Jimmy Fallon's and the old Taylor Swift's who were very careful um, not to sort of in the Jordan way, you know, Republicans buy shoes to not to offend anyone on either side and to be sort of have this, has have this mass palatability is the future that we will have, um, you know, more celebrities being sort of open about their politics and being more political in their public uh, persona on social media and elsewhere. And we just won't have those George Clooney. Well, <laughs> that's a terrible example. Uh, we won't have those, um, you know, th those Dolly Partons, um, a much better example, um, uh, those Betty Whites or those Johnny Carsons in the future. Yeah, I mean, the short answer is yes. Uh, what's interesting now is it's not even just conservatives. I've, I, I have recently had contact with a, um, a reporter who is, is really interested in, uh, in, and promotes free speech. And we had this sort of a DM chat about the situation. And it, I, don't, I didn't know her before this conversation, but she talked about all the pressure she feels for just wanting to be more open and wanting to kind of promote freedom and, and a healthy exchange of ideas. So this is someone who seems to be probably left of center, who is now facing significant blowback within her own industry. Uh, I, I have another friend who works, covers film like I do, and she's very similar, certainly left of center, but has just been bombarded and attacked for wanting an open and fair debate about issues. So it isn't just a, I'm a celebrity who leans a little bit to the right and I have to shut the heck up. It's other things too. It's really terrible. And you know, that's why the Gina Carano, we all know now has, it, it, it has a, a version of a happy ending because she got a job with the Daily Wire. She's making a movie, maybe making more projects and she was able to land on her feet to a certain degree. But uh, imagine the message it would send where a, 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 an attractive, talented, popular actress gets kicked off one of the biggest shows around and then just goes you know longing for work and doesn't get any what would that say to every other actor in hollywood it would be you better shut up or you're not going to work again if you don't have the exact viewpoint that we want it, it's a scary time yeah i've said this a couple of times but when i was on the set of the daily wires uh, terror on the prairie movie with gina carano one of the striking things to me was how many people who weren't necessarily conservative but were just sort of anti-establishment in the way that you would expect you know people who who work on films to be um and artists certainly to be were there be and and were like there specifically because they loved the idea of basically giving a middle finger to the industry and i think that's really where the future is is going and we'll have to see how some of these experiments play out but do you think maybe there's a self-correction uh in progress here because above all these people are uh the the green party the party of money uh i should say above um being the party of of any particular idea that's not true of all of them but for a lot of them a lot of these executives in hollywood they want money. And if they see that people like Gina Carano and The Daily Wire can sort of chase audiences successfully and, and, and make good stuff successfully by actually appealing to Americans um, and Americans of particular political persuasions, do you have confidence that uh, this might shake out in a good way? 
it will take a while if that if that actually happens. I'm, I'm a little skeptical. I mean, bravo to the Daily Wire for what they're doing. I, I'm a contributor there just for full transparency. But I think what they're doing is amazing. And I would say that with or without any connection to them. But I think what you're seeing now is that the, the landscape is so splintered that you could keep a Stephen Colbert on the air and he has enough of an audience, certainly a left-wing audience, where he can thrive. And I think at, at this point, Hollywood doesn't need to reach out, doesn't need to to sort of say we need to have a big tent approach because they can make enough money and they can survive without it. And so they can kind of, you know, lean into their biases. They can lean into their hatreds. And until they really feel an economic pinch, which they have not felt yet, I don't think anything changes. I, I mean, I still think there's an, a great opportunity for Daily Wire style rebels and, and other, you know, other artists kind of working around the system. You know, we see it in comedy. Uh, I hope to see more of it. You know, The Federalist just put out a documentary. I want to see more of that. There are other, other smart documentaries on lower budgets that are being put out there that, that raise, you know, interesting points. So I think that phenomenon will continue. But I don't think Hollywood gets a message. I don't think they're aware of it. And I think they're going to cling to their current mission for a long, long time. And just a perfect example, in the last year, we saw Gutfeld come out of nowhere and basically partially dethrone Stephen Colbert without A-list stars, without a massive budget, without all the accoutrement of the typical late night show. Why? Well, because there's no right of center show on late night at all. So you throw it out there and it's going to do gangbuster business. So where are the where are the copycats? Where is Netflix going to put out a show like that? Is anyone else going to target Gutfeld and sort of share some of his audience or maybe make it grow and, 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 and expand on it? I don't see anything like that. You're not going to see it. And they knew all along that that would be successful with they made a, a good show. And not to take away anything from Greg Gutfeld, who's very funny and sharp and clever, and he deserves his success. But part of it is because people at that time of night have nothing to speak to them. Half the country is not being entertained. But Hollywood just wants to shrug their shoulders and keep on keeping on. I think if you saw two new late night shows uh, promoted in the next year or two, I guarantee they're left of center. Yeah, and it, it Gutfeld just makes people laugh. And a lot of people, I don't know if they know this, but when he was at Red Eye, I was a huge Red Eye fan. Um, and I watched it every day, DVR'd it every single day. And uh, back in the day, he used to have Amy Schumer on. <laughs> and Amy Schumer has this, uh, I, I use this word a lot, a lot, but the arc of Amy Schumer's career is really instructive because she would go on Red Eye and make just subversive, hilarious, very politically incorrect jokes. And, and now, of course, she's more famous, but she wouldn't, you know, be caught dead making a joke that could offend, uh, you know, the left in any significant way. And that's just, it shows how you now have Greg Gutfeld as one of, he has his own show, which is one of the most popular television shows in existence. And Amy Schumer's just sort of doing her thing on, on social media. I think it does speak to the fact that the, the demand really is there just to make people laugh. I mean, you don't even have to be a political Johnny Carson or hyper-political Bill Maher. People just want to laugh. Yeah, it, the Amy Schumer arc is very interesting because there was a time where she was going to be a big movie star. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Trainwreck was good. It made a lot of money. 
And uh, then she made a couple follow-ups and the woke mob just went after her. I Feel Pretty was problematic. Uh, Snatched was problematic. Neither did well at the box office. Neither was very good. And uh, I think she's got some TV show coming up on one of the streaming platforms, but her star has certainly fallen significantly. I want to real quickly mention um, what happens in Hollywood to, to performers. Tina Fey is very smart, very talented. She's got a track record that speaks for itself. And a few years ago, one of her, one of her shows was under attack. I think it was Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. I think she produced and or wrote it or both. And she said, when she was asked about it, she said, I don't make it a policy to explain my jokes, which was a brilliant answer and kind of a, uh, a bleep you to the, to the emerging woke mob. Fast forward to today, she sounds like a social justice warrior. She's been re-educated, and to hear her talk is to hear her defend a woke mob and talk about diversity and, and, and have all the conversations you hear from everyone else. So they got to her. They, 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 they brainwashed her. And she knows that if she wants to succeed and thrive in this business, she's going to have to, to play a certain game if she wants to exist within the Hollywood ecosystem. You know, the Ryan Longs don't care about that. Uh, you know, Tim Dillon doesn't. They want, they'll, they, they're happy with their success on their own terms. But Tina Fey wants to be in the game and she knows what she has to do to stay in the game. Yeah, you're, you're right about comedy, and a lot of this has played out specifically in uh, that sector of the entertainment industry. Um, you also write in this book about the Me Too movement and how that changed Hollywood, how it upended <laughs> so many of the, I guess, the, the pieties and the virtues that a lot of people purported to have. Tell us now with that, you know, a few years in the rear, rear view mirror, um, what Me Too did to, to Hollywood? Well, you know, when it when it bloomed, when it blossomed, it was a good thing. You know, there are predators in our midst. They are not just in Hollywood. They're everywhere. And we really needed someone to kind of, you know, sound the alarm and say enough is enough and, and hold some people accountable. But almost right away, you thought, oh, this is Hollywood. They're going to they're not going to, you know, <laughs> they're not going to be good shepherds of this movement. And they're not. So it be, quickly became political. The uh, the Time's Up movement was a disaster. I, I don't even think I, I was able to share all of what happened with that train wreck, but it, it's really uh, illuminating. Uh, and then, you know, Hollywood, you know, went after Republican targets and, and stood back as Democratic targets uh, were, were challenged by the Me Too like thinking. So, you know, it's it's, you know, let's root for Biden, who's got a history of, of untoward behavior and let's attack Donald Trump, who's got a history of untoward behavior. It's 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 a perfect example of what Hollywood does and does so wrong. Well, then there's such an interesting message in here. You you quote or you include the quote from Harvey Weinstein about Hollywood having the best moral compass, which actually used to be sort of the way Hollywood really saw itself, that they were the moral compass of America because they were the one telling these beautiful stories that inspired and moved the country um, and, and nudged them in the direction of justice and, and rightness and all of that good stuff. Um, but in the midst of the Me Too movement, we didn't see Hollywood sort of concede that it was all a ruse. We saw them, I think, double down on the virtue bombs, as you write in, in the title itself. Why do you think they went with that route instead of the other? I mean, they're inauthentic to the core. It, it's a real shame. You know, for four years, we heard kids in cages, kids in cages. And then when that policy continued and got worse under Biden, they, 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 they clammed up. So it's it's what Hollywood is. You know, 
select stars can do wonderful things. They can raise money. They can raise awareness. They can, you know, when a Chris Evans dresses up like Captain America and goes to a children's hospital, it's amazing. It's life changing for those, for those kids who are suffering. So, you know, not all celebrity is bad and some celebrities do great things, but they're often misguided. They're often short-sighted. They're often thinking of themselves and, and not really the big picture. And they're often so darn political that they don't even let a, a, a wonderful movement like me too be what it should be it's just it's sad the book is virtue bombs how hollywood got woke and lost its soul christian toto thank you so much for joining us once again thank you so much i really appreciate it absolutely you've been listening to another edition of the federalist radio hour i'm emily jashinsky culture editor here at the federalist we will be back soon with more until then be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray The fame voice of reason